So I've learned that uh, masks and headset mics do not mix. They don't like each other. They just kind of like grab a hold of each other, kind of like glasses. Some of you are like using masks with glasses and they just kind of like catch onto your glasses and everything. Add glasses and a headset microphone and a mask. It's a mess. So it's good to be uh, with you this morning. It's really good to get to connect with you again around God's word. I feel kind of frazzled because I feel like I've been struggling with technology this morning and uh I've been trying to get it so that those of you that are tuning in live can see the PowerPoint and we have a testimony video that we want you to be able to see as well. And so I spent half a day yesterday trying to get all the technology working for that. It worked great for my house. We came up here and plugged it in and it's got this horrible buzzing noise and nothing's working right. And I've spent the last over hour and a half trying to get it to work. And so unfortunately, for those of you tuning in live, I don't have PowerPoint. We're not going to do the video this week. I'm going to try to do that next week uh, for the testimony and see if, uh, if God will give me wisdom to know how to solve this problem. I think that if Jesus were alive today, he would cast demons out of technology. I'm really, I'm really convinced of that. Um, but so I apologize for things not going as planned. If the audio quality is a little bit off this morning, uh, they're making some adjustments now. Last week, uh, the audio, we don't know what happened to it. It just totally flipped out and got really bad. So um, hopefully the guys will be able to get that adjusted if we need to as well. So this morning we pick up with Christmas again. Does it feel like Christmas yet? Kind of? Yeah, like what's missing? Snow. How many of you are like, it's got to snow if it's going to be Christmas? How many of you are like, I don't care if I ever saw snow again? All right, that's good. Some of you are honest about that. It is. Is it snowing right now? All right, it's going to be a great day. Things just got better. Forget the technology, it's snow and life is good. Can anybody tell me when Christmas started? At the first Noel. The Christmas that we celebrate, when did, when did we actually start celebrating Christmas? Anybody have any ideas? It wasn't 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born. I'll let you know that. Anybody want to guess? Nope. But thank you for stabbing a guess. No, it wasn't the 1800s. Anybody else? You might as well guess. I mean, you, you... nope, but it's a good guess. It's like you might as well, right? Okay, so it's not 500, it's not 18. It is in the middle of those. It wasn't until the 11th century, so the 1000s, right, that we started celebrating Christmas. And we actually have the Catholic Church to thank for that because it was Christ's Mass that they would celebrate. And they were celebrating the advent of Jesus, not actually like the date of his birth, but his coming to earth because nobody was really sure what was the exact date of his birth. And how do you really celebrate a I mean, I know some people have some really cool traditions of having a birthday cake for Jesus and everything, but he like transcends time. So I really don't even know what to do with that because a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day and all this kind of stuff. Like time doesn't matter to him. So does he do, do birthdays? He's eternal. But anyway, he did come to earth and he was born. And so uh, around 11th century, they started celebrating the special mass or service uh, in the Catholic church that we call Christmas. And 
we call it Christmas or Christ Mass because we, we get this Greek word Christos. Christos. Anybody know what Christos means? It means Christ. That's our English transliteration of Christos. Christos is the Greek word that means the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah. So you have Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, English version of the Hebrew word. You have Christ, which is the English version of the Greek word, Christos. And you, both of them actually mean the same thing. And we see this even in our Bibles. A lot of your translations may translate uh, John 1.41 this way. Here's, I'm going to read John 1.41 from the Christian Standard Bible. When Andrew first found his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, and then in brackets, my translation says, which is translated, the Christ. So, of course, Andrew and Simon were Jewish, and so they were looking for the Messiah, and he said, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ in Greek. They both are interchangeable, kind of like, um, any of you ever play Uno? When you get down to that last card, do you say one? Well, yes, you do. You can say it in a different language, don't you? Because one and uno are interchangeable. They mean the same thing, right? But you'd look really silly if you said one at the end and you, they make you pick up more cards. Because, you know, if it's uno, it's got to be uno. But for you, it's the same, right? Yeah. So for Laria, it's all the same. That's all good. So uno and one, they mean the same to us. And we use them interchangeably. Same with uh, Messiah and Christ. They mean the same thing. And both of them um, actually have a really interesting meaning that I'm gonna read for you. Um, they mean this, a person having sacred oil poured ceremonially, ceremonially on one's head and so become a person with special authority and function with the implication of one having the, the choice and approval of God. I'll read that again. A person having sacred oil poured ceremonially on one's head and so become a person with special authority and function with the implication of being of having the choice and approval of God. Now we saw anointings in the Old Testament when kings were presented; they were anointed. The prophets would go and anoint them as king. Um, we we see this in actually in Jesus' death. We see him being anointed as well. But this idea of Messiah or of Christos of Christ is this person who was anointed for a very special work. Now, for me, when I read it, I, hear, I read Jesus Christ, and I read Jesus the Christ, and I kind of get a little different meaning depending upon how I read it. Do you? Like Jesus Christ and Jesus the Christ. When you say Jesus Christ, it's kind of like that's his whole name. But when you say Jesus the Christ, you're kind of talking about his title, his position, his function. Um, so for me, when I'm reading... Uh, I like to, to think about Jesus as the Christ, as the anointed one, the one who God chose for a specific purpose. Um, and when we hear the phrase, Jesus the Christ, we're supposed to think that Jesus is the one that's anointed by God for special, with special authority for a specific purpose. So when you read about the Christ, the Messiah, this is God's chosen one who is called for a specific purpose and picked by God. In our case, as we've been studying the Old Testament, this is the person who's going to restore what we lost in Eden. 
This is the person who's going to take things back to the way that it was before man messed it up really bad in Genesis chapter 3. So this morning, we're going to look at our second passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. So why don't you turn or tap on over to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to look at the second promise from Isaiah that we've studied so far. Not the second one necessarily in the book, but the second one that we've studied so far that points to this coming Messiah. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the coming of Christ or the the fact that the Messiah came to earth. And so in Isaiah's time, they were looking forward to this event. Last week, David talked about the virgin will conceive. And we talked about that being one of the passages that points to the coming Messiah. This morning, we're going to look at a different set of passages that talk about the coming of the Messiah from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read this time from the New Living Translation. Sorry, I should have told you that ahead of time, because some of you like to follow in the same translation. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, New Living Translation. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. And the boots of warriors and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. There will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us and a son is given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, and his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study this passage together. We pray that you would just show us this amazing plan that you prepared so far in advance to redeem mankind. Father, help us to see your Messiah, your anointed one, through this passage we pray. Amen. Our passage starts out with this phrase, nevertheless. And nevertheless is one of those transition um, phrases. It's like there's something else that happened if you're saying a nevertheless. And it's meant for us to think about what happened in the previous chapter. Now, we didn't cover the previous chapter, but chapter eight is a chapter of doom and gloom. I mean, it's like one of those we're all going to die. We're all going to go into exile. Some of you will survive, but only a few. It's going to be bad. So you have this doom and gloom, and it ends in darkness and doom and gloom. And actually, some translations put this verse, verse 1 in our chapter 9, at the end of chapter 8. Isn't that interesting? Just a reminder, verse verse chapters and and numbers are a man-made convention. The originals were just collections of letters, collections of writings. So some translations put this first verse as the end of chapter 8 because that therefore 
is kind of the conclusion of what chapter 8 was talking about. Chapter 8 was God's judgment will be poured out upon Israel and the nations, but his wrath will subside. This therefore is, but there is hope. It's the beginning of a, of a phrase that kind of makes them think, okay, we're not all just going to get wiped out. There is still hope. Though there will be destruction and gloom, there will be restoration, and the gloom and the darkness will dissipate, will start to let up. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. So be sure that Isaiah is saying that there will be a time of darkness and despair. They're not going to avoid that. There will be no avoiding the fact that they're going to have some struggles, but there will be an end to that despair. And he kind of describes what's going to happen or when it's going to happen and what it's going to look like when that season of darkness and gloom turns into a season of hope and light. What is it going to look like at that time? So in verse 1, it says that the gloom and distressed land will not be like the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, first of all, they hadn't been humbled yet, I don't believe, as of this passage, but they will be. It's prophets talk in tenses that don't always make sense to us. Um, but in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, the land of the east of Jordan and the Galilee and the nations. So Isaiah goes on to say that God will humble Zebulun and Naphtali. And it seems like an odd phrase. Um, and we don't really find out why directly from these verses that or how exactly God humbled them, these two places. It's not spelled out here. It just says, of course, the way that he did it, but we don't get that description. Um, actually, remember we talked about Tiglath Pileser the third, who comes in as the Assyrian king and he conquers the northern kingdoms. He actually, in 733, comes, came into the northern kingdoms, and he took over three provinces. He, he took over the north, and he set up three provinces. One was called Megiddo, which is Galilee. The other one was Duru, the way of the sea. And the other one was Galaza, which is the land of the east of the Jordan. So when Tiglath came in, the Assyrians took the Israelites by, into exile, they set up three regions, the same three regions that are talked about in this passage that are now Assyrian empires. They're controlled by the enemy. And sometimes I read places like this and I'm thinking, all right, that's nice. How many of you just want to like skim over those verses? You're like, okay, yeah, whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a tribe. It's a land. It's all good. And I, I, I tend to do that. It's like, okay, that's but I'm preaching on this passage. So I kind of want to know when I'm coming into this, what it, why he called them out. So I started looking in the past, but maybe there's something in Zebulun and Naphtali's past that would make God want to humble them over the rest of them. So I went back and I thought, well, you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob became Israel and Jacob is the one that had 12 sons. And these are two of his sons that he's calling out these two tribes. So I went back to Jacob's blessings on his sons. I thought maybe there's a clue in there as to why they would be humble. I didn't find it. So I fast forwarded to Moses and thought, well, Moses, before the people entered the promised land, blessed each of the tribes by name and gave them certain promises. Maybe there's a clue in there why God would humble them. I didn't find it. So if you find it in the Old Testament, why God chose those two over the others, 
for something they did, please let me know because I couldn't find it. So if it's not something in their past, then there must be something special in the future that he's choosing to humble them because he's going to choose to do something great through them later. Not because of something that they'd previously done, but because of what he is going to eventually do. And that's what I found. Again, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, There will be a time in the future when this land will be filled with glory. In the future, God is going to take these two tribes that he's humbled, and he's going to somehow make them filled with glory. Now, this is a, a promise of future hope. So right now, right now, really, your, your prophet radar should be going off. And it should be like, do-do-do-do-do. Okay, future hope, future hope, future hope. We've got to be talking about a Messiah here. We've got to be talking about something that's going to be coming down the road. We, we probably are also talking about a specific day. What day is that? Anybody? The day of the Lord, right? Okay, good. So you're tracking with it. So that prophet radar should be kicking in and you're going, okay, he's talking about the day of the Lord again. He's been talking about it long and he's probably talking about the Messiah. Um, so what we find is that Isaiah then takes verses two through seven as a commentary for the listeners as to what it's going to look like when that future hope arrives. So now he's going to say, let me tell you what it looks like so that you will know when God is doing these things and you'll recognize that it is God who is doing these things. So I thought, why don't I spend some time with you talking about what it will look like, what it will look like on that day when the coming of the Messiah, when he appears, what will it look like? And Isaiah gives us five different things, actually, that I want us to look at. Sorry, I am not having very good success with technology this morning. He says, first of all, there will be light in verse 2. So there's going to be light that overshadows the darkness. That Israel will be enlarged as a nation that the people will have joy, that there will be freedom from oppression or slavery, and that there will be an end of war or there will be peace. These are our five signs that Isaiah is saying will be evident when this person, when this future hope arrives, and then in verse 6 he calls it the son that is born. When this son that is born and this future hope arises, you're going to see these five things. Light, the enlargement of the nation, joy, freedom, and peace. So let me see if I can get back to my notes now. Things will be different at that time, but what will make the difference? And I think this is the other thing we have to question. So in that day, in the day that Isaiah is talking about, things will be different, but what's going to make the difference? And that is what shows up in verses 6 and 7. So verses 2 through 5 are here's how it's going to be different. Verses 6 and 7 are this is why it's going to be different. Things will change because God is going to place his person on the throne of Israel to rule, and this one will rule with God's wisdom 
and God's power. In other words, he's going to restore the Eden ideal. When we stepped away from God in Eden, it's because we chose to define good and, e- good and bad on our own, to rule on our own apart from God and not allow him to rule. When Israel rejected God as their king, it's because they chose to rule themselves rather than to be ruled by God and to fall under his leadership. What's going to change in this is that there will be a person, a human, placed on a throne that will rule God's way in God's authority under God's wisdom. And that's what's going to make the difference. Now, when we read about these things, it's pretty obvious that they haven't happened yet. There's still war, isn't there? Yeah, there's still a lot of war. There's still a lot of darkness. Um, there's still a lot of border struggles for Israel. I, don't think, I can't say their borders have been enlarged very much. Um, there's not always seasons of joy. Sometimes there is. And there's still a lot of oppression in our world. So when we read this, we, we definitely recognize that these things didn't already take place completely. But if you've been tracking with us, with the prophets, you know that when a prophet is speaking, he can be talking about several events that are all connected. At the same time, he could be talking about something that's taking place now, something that will partially take place in the future, and something that will be completely fulfilled way in the future. And that's what he's doing here as well. Though the ultimate fulfillment of this passage will be on the big D day of the Lord that David talked about, that final day when we read in Revelation, when God once and for all does away with evil, once and for all does away with pain and with suffering and with war, once and for all takes the throne and removes all other authorities. On that day, All of this will be fulfilled. But Isaiah is also talking about a partial fulfillment of this through this Messiah, through this Christ. So let's look at what the gospel writers said and thought about Jesus and about the Messiah, because they call him Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. How do the gospel writers and the New Testament writers connect Jesus to Isaiah chapter 9. So we're going to start cross-referencing a bunch of stuff from the New Testament to Isaiah chapter 9. So flip over to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. So you can turn or tap on over there. Matthew 4. Let me give you a little backstory. Matthew 3, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. That should be a hyperlink in your brain back to the Exodus story, right? In chapter 4, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. That number 40 in that time of testing should also hyperlink you back to Exodus. I'm just trying to help you make some connect. We're not going to get into all that, but hopefully your brain is, is starting to do this in a natural way. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, Jesus withdrew into Galilee and then launched his preaching ministry. And here's how we read Matthew's account of Jesus after his temptation, just before he starts his public ministry, what takes place. Matthew 4, 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth. And went, in, and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
Hmm. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Matthew connects the start of the ministry of Jesus, at least as a partial fulfillment of the glory and the blessing of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. It's the start of it. It's not a complete fulfillment of, of all of it, but it certainly is a direct fulfillment. He then connects Jesus as the light that shines in the darkness. From Isaiah chapter 9. And the message of Jesus is that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So you're catching three different hyperlinks from this one passage back to Isaiah chapter 9. A kingdom with somebody sitting on it and he's going to be the one that's enthroned. So a heavenly kingdom. You have the land that is being blessed because of a light coming from that land. So you have three different hyperlinks. So Matthew is making the claim that Jesus is the anointed one, that Jesus is the Messiah, the son that would be born. He's also connecting the sun and lights to this kingdom, which is really cool. Um, so if this is the case, if Matthew believes that Jesus is the anointed one, then we should see in the life and ministry of Jesus the fulfillment, or at least the partial fulfillment, of those things mentioned in verses 2 through 5 of Isaiah 9. Those five things, that there would be light, that the nation of Israel be enlarged, that their joy would be increased, that there would be an, um, freedom from slavery, and there would be no more war. We should see that happen in the life of Jesus if he is the Messiah, as Matthew claims. So let's look at some of these together. See if I can get my notes to progress here for me. So let's look at the first one. What will the coming Messiah look like? First of all, there will be light. Oh, you silly screen. First of all, there will be light. Matthew already connected Jesus to the light, but what about other authors in the New Testament? Um, John. John is an amazing writer. John starts out his gospel about Jesus with this, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I don't think John could have used the word light more in a couple sentences than he just did. Okay, John wasn't the light. He was announcing about the light, the real light, this light, that light. He, he wants to make a point. Jesus is that light that was mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9 that came into the darkness and that 
remove the darkness. Just to continue in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh, but or the will of man, but of God. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, I don't know how many hyperlinks you picked up in there, but let's see, you have one that was born. So Isaiah 9, unto us, a child is born, unto us, a son is given. Uh, you have glory that is brought into the land because of this blessing. So it was, it was a, there was glory was one of the words uh, describing what would happen in the land. Um, you have the enlarging of the nation that all those who would believe would now be a part of the descendants of God. There's a lot of little hyperlinks in here. Some are more obvious than others. John makes sure the light is the most obvious one. He just kind of nails it. Matter of fact, of all the gospel writers, I think John chose to emphasize Jesus being light more than anything else. If you search the gospel of John in your Bible app and you search the word light, you will just see passage after passage after passage after passage about the light. As a matter of fact, you can read 1 John and get even more references. That was also written by the same guy. And he just keeps talking about light over and over and over again. Um, at one point uh, in, in his gospel, John quotes Jesus. And in John chapter 12, verse 46, John quotes Jesus saying this, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. So in case you weren't sure that John had it right, Jesus just kind of threw it out there. I am the light that removes the darkness. So if we were saying that the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, that the Messiah would bring light to remove darkness, as Isaiah claimed in verse 2, then I could say that Jesus checked off that box. And we can see through the gospel writers and through his own teaching that he was the light that came to dispel darkness. So at least one out of five, but we know from studying people in the Old Testament, like David and Solomon, that some people can be kind of like the Messiah, but not the Messiah. So that's one. Let's check that one off and let's go on to the next one. We talked about the nation being enlarged. So let's go to that one. This is getting old with technology here. The nation being enlarged. Isaiah said the borders of Israel would be enlarged. And no, this is not a fulfillment of the prayer of Jabez. Um, this is about the expansion of the people of God. This is about um, the people of God, the chosen ones of God, growing. Um, so people, as people choose to submit to the leadership of the one appointed by God, the nation, the kingdom, would be enlarged. So as people choose to submit to the leader that God will place on the throne, the nation will be enlarged. Now, the nation of Israel began with one man, Abram, right? God picked him, made a promise to him and through him, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was a foretelling of the work of the Messiah, the anointed one, that would restore things all the way to the way that God had created them. So the nation of Israel grew tremendously. Remember, one of the reasons Pharaoh was threatened by Israel was because they grew so large, he kind of made up this story, they're going to revolt, um, we should oppress them a little bit. Um, and make their life miserable. 
they continue to grow and to grow and to grow. However, by the time we get to this to Isaiah, we're now talking about the hope of a remnant that maybe after all of this exile and punishment from God, there'll be a couple left over, a percentage, a tenth, a portion. So when you read this promise that the nation would be enlarged, maybe it means they'll get their territory back because they're losing that. Maybe it would mean that there'll be more of them, that they'll be fruitful and multiply again like they did before. Maybe. And if you were a Jew during this day, you would be hoping for that. But is that all that we should see in this passage? Is that the only way we should understand this reading? And I think, I think John alluded to more than this in the John 1 passage where he talks about all those who believe, all those who are born of the will of God are then the children of God. We talked about it in, in the end of that, that passage we read in 1 John. I think he alluded to it, but I think Paul makes it really clear in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Galatians 3, verse 7. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles or the nations by faith, and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. Wait a minute, he proclaimed the gospel to Abraham? Yes. Saying that all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. So we find that those that have faith are now part of the nation, part of God's chosen people. So when the nation of Israel is enlarged, it very well could and should mean not just the people born of flesh, but those born of faith. Paul is basically saying that there's a bigger nation, a bigger people group than of Israel than just the bloodline of Abraham. And it also includes those born of faith in the Messiah. The Apostle Peter alluded to this in his letter to his Jewish followers, um, who are spread out around Jerusalem. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possessions, that you may proclaim the praise of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. And he's talking to Jews who have received the Messiah, who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Once they weren't a people, now they are a people. Wait a minute, they were the Jews. They were always God's people, but it's their faith in the Messiah that truly makes them the people of God. Though only a small portion of Jews were restored after the exile, following the coming of Jesus, the people of God has continued to grow exponentially to include both Jew and non-Jew. All that would place their faith in the one anointed by God to redeem humanity from sin. So we have a prophecy that someday the Messiah, and we also have a prophecy that someday the Messiah will rule over all the nations, not just the Jews. In Zechariah, another one of our prophets, Zechariah 4.9 says, On that day, so you're automatically tracking right to the, the day, On that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone, and his name alone. So Jesus was both the light and the cause, I believe, for the borders of Israel to be increased because God's kingdom has no boundaries 
His kingdom continues to grow through people who place their faith in the Messiah. So we'll check that box. Let's go on to the next one, joy increased. Isaiah said there'd be much joy, like when you celebrate a harvest and you get all this food. Now, we just came through Thanksgiving, right? How many of you ate way too much for Thanksgiving? Oh, I'm in. How many of you are like ramping up for eating too much for Christmas too? Right. So there will be joy like celebrating like a feast. Celebrating like those that have just come back from war and been victorious. And this had to be welcome news to people who were just told that they were going to be destroyed, almost destroyed by an enemy. That there's going to be military conquest. That they were going to be taken into exile. And they're going to celebrate as if they were just come back from war victorious. The season of gloom will end. Have you ever been in a season of gloom? I think the thing that gets us through the season of gloom is having the hope that there's something better yet to come. The birth of Jesus came with an announcement from an angel, from one of the heavenly armies. In Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it's a pretty, pretty popular passage around this time of year. In Luke 2.10, it says, The angel reassured them, don't be afraid. You guys have this memorized because of Charlie Brown? I bring you, right, good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of, Labor, uh, city of David. So how many hyperlinks to Isaiah 9 do you see in this passage? Let's see, you have joy, you have one that's born, you have the mention of David again in his, in his kingdom, and then you have the angelic host um, that's mentioned here. Luke says that the coming of the Messiah would be good news of great joy. He's referring to the birth of Jesus. So he's stating that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah who will bring the joy that was promised in Isaiah chapter 9. As Jesus taught his disciples, he said this, John 15, 9, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. And I have told you these things that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. I think Jesus had joy uh, as one of his goals. As he approached Jerusalem, and he taught a lot about having joy and having the joy that comes from the Father. As Jesus approached Jerusalem toward the end of his ministry, there's this scene where he's coming down the road riding on a donkey. And the people take branches and they lay them in the road and they're celebrating like you would when you come back from a victory in war. And in Luke 19, it says this, as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. And now he came near to the path down to the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Okay, at least three hyperlinks there. But in particular, this idea that they were full of joy because of the work that the Messiah had done. I think we have a fulfillment of the Messiah bringing joy to the people. I think he checked that box. So let's go on to the next one. Burdens being lifted. Burdens being lifted. Did I get it? No, I got to do one more, don't I? There. 
or freedom from slavery is another way we could refer to it. Freedom from slavery. In this passage in Isaiah, he talks about a yoke. Now, for most of us, yoke means the part of an egg. It's spelled differently, but that's what we think of when you hear the word yoke, right? How many of you know what he has actually like seen a real yoke, Y-O-K-E? Some of you have? Describe a yoke to me. What is it for? For dumb animals, okay? And what in particular for dumb animals is it for? Right, oxen especially. And for what purpose? Training, work, bearing the load, getting them going in the right direction, all sorts of different things. So basically... Just throwing it out there, um, it's possible that we might just be sometimes dumb animals. And I think the Bible does show that throughout Scripture. But there's this idea that God has this yoke of slavery, this bondage that the Jews are under. And the Israelites experienced this with Pharaoh. They were, um, they've also experienced it under the rules of the Assyrians and the Babylonians during their exiles. And then also the, uh, the Medes. Um, during the time that Jesus is on this earth, they're going to experience it through the Roman Empire. The, however, the burden of slavery that the Jews faced was not just a physical slavery or bondage to nations, physical nations. I think there's actually like at least three components to this slavery. Um, I would say that the, the first one is slavery to other nations, which God would eventually undo. But obviously, even at the time of Christ coming, it hadn't been completely undone. Um, the other one would be they were, that the Jews were slaves to the law of God. And the third one is that they were slaves to sin, which goes back to Genesis chapter 3. If Jesus was the Messiah, he would have accomplished this work of freeing Israel from the burden of slavery. That's what the Jews were looking for, isn't it? Free us from Rome. Establish your kingdom on this earth. That's what they were looking for when Jesus showed up on the scene. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus makes a claim. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. I'll give you a chance to flip over there real quick. Matthew 11, verse 28. I think... Because this is not a phrase that's used in many places in the New Testament, I have a feeling that Jesus was hyperlinking us back to Isaiah 9 here. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. And that's a different kind of light. It's like, is it not heavy? That's not the light we were talking about earlier. That's not a hyperlink. Just want to be clear on that. The Jews were looking for freedom from their physical oppressors. But Jesus was not bringing that at that time. He did not come to undo the Roman uh, oppression during his day. And I don't believe that the fulfillment of this as far as them being freed from the nations will happen until the day of the Lord. 
But what about these other things? And the New Testament writers did see Jesus as one who came to remove the yoke or burden of, of the slavery to the law and to sin. John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And a slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. So I think that this idea of being free from the slavery of sin, which goes way back to the garden and the fall, Jesus says, listen, I can set you free from that slavery completely because you can become sons, not just slaves. Paul, in his letter to the non-Jews in Galatians, said this, Galatians 5.1, if Christ has truly set us free, so Christ has truly set us free, excuse me, now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in the slavery to the law. So there's two slaveries that are mentioned here, the law and sin, that, we, that the Jews were bound to and that we are bound to, that Jesus came to undo, to remove the yoke, the burden of slavery, the oppression that's been on mankind. Actually, he's actually going to even remove the oppression on the land on that day that's been cursed from Genesis chapter 3. But the New Testament authors at least saw a partial fulfillment of the lifting of this burden, of the ultimate burden of sin by Jesus, by him as the Messiah. So we can check that box, I think, as well, which takes us to this, this last one. There will be peace. There will be peace, an end of war. Isaiah claimed that there would be an end of war by declaring that the boots of battles and the bloody garments of war would be burned, that God will destroy his enemies like he did um, Midian, which see Judges chapter 7 and 8, if you want to read about that. It's pretty cool. And he would establish peace or lack of conflict in war. Now, this is something we talk a lot, a lot, talk about a lot during the Christmas season. Peace on earth, right? It's on Christmas cards. It's on banners. It's on ornaments. It's in songs that we sing. Peace is one of those things that we just see as part of the fulfillment of the Messiah, what God is going to establish. When the angels, the heavenly beings, appeared to the shepherds to announce that the Messiah was born, Luke chapter 2. Let's look at that passage again. I want to look at verses 10 through 14. So tap on over, Luke 2, 10 through 14. Because we're going to expand this a, a little bit from what we read earlier so you can see all of the hyperlinks to Isaiah 9. The angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by the vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. So this passage obviously connects the Messiah to peace because the Messiah will bring peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. I also love how it brings in the hosts of heaven or the armies of heaven. Now, your translation, how many of you have the translation that says heavenly hosts? Anybody have that in their translation? When, when I see heavenly hosts, I get this image that we've painted for years of just like these, these little white creatures with wings kind of floating up in the sky and singing, oh, glory to 
go. And you know, it's it's kind of this one of those majestic, um, yeah. But when you think of a host, you have to go back to what the word meant when we came up with our English translations, which referred to an army, usually prepared for battle. So if you thought instead of little white creatures floating around with wings, which I don't even see where angels have wings, just throw that out there. So you have the host of, heaven, of, of heaven's armies up there prepared for battle to establish a kingdom. Now, soldiers, when you're preparing for battle, you look a little different when you're battle ready, right? You've got all your gear on. You've got, I mean, you're you're decked. You got everything that you need. You look different and intimidating. I want to say that, okay? When I when I approach somebody who's ready for battle, who's dressed and has their weapon and everything else ready to go, I'm quite intimidated by that. It's a very impressive display. This was an intimidating display of the armies of heaven shouting out glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace with whom he is pleased. I think it's beautiful. And, and I, I really hope that we get this idea when we see hosts in the future that is talking about the armies of heaven. It's the armies. Um, so it's obvious that Israel has not experienced um, this kind of peace yet. The promise is one that will only be fully realized completely on the day of the Lord. Matter of fact, I asked a young man who stayed with me, who's from Jerusalem, what it's like to be a Jew living in Jerusalem. And his comment was, it's great if you like walking around with a target on you because everybody wants your land. Everybody wants what you have and they're not afraid to shoot at you to get it. I'm like, okay, well, that kind of makes you think a little bit, doesn't it? They certainly have not experienced the peace on earth in the sense of peace from the conflict of war. But the angelic announcement was that there would be peace for those in whom God is pleased. That would be those that choose to accept the Messiah, that choose to follow God. It's not a peace with nations, but a peace with the creator of nations. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be fearful. He gives a different kind of peace. We have a peace because Jesus, not because Jesus conquered the Romans, for he didn't. We have peace because he conquered the world, which is sin and death. John 6, 33. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. You will have suffering this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. And he didn't mean physical kingdoms when he said he conquered the world. He conquered sin and he conquered death. And now because of that, we can have peace with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus the Christ. The connection of peace with Jesus is really overwhelming in the New Testament. So um, how many books did the Apostle Paul write? Anybody? Want to guess? There's actually three numbers you can come up with because there's three main thoughts out there. But, but I come up with 13. Um, 13 is the most common number that people will look at. Some people ascribe the book of uh, Acts to him, which I don't believe, um, not Acts, book of Hebrews, excuse me, to him. And, and I don't, I'm, I'm not convinced that he wrote the book of Hebrews. So I'll just say the 13. Of the 13 books that Paul wrote, every single one of them 
has an introduction in the form of grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of them. I think he was trying to get his point across. Of the 17 books, I'm sorry, the 22 books that are not one of the Gospels or Acts, so the 22 other books of the New Testament, 17 of them, or three-quarters of them, include the phrase, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a little bonus. It's only because of the grace of God that we can experience the peace of God. Amen? Yeah. It's quite apparent that the apostles and the disciples, that the disciples slash apostles and the gospel writers believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he ushered in a season of peace. So it appears that there's great evidence that from Isaiah that Jesus was the Messiah. It appears. Um, and when we go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we read, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. There's that peace again. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And there's this word for. It's a good transition word. And I have a, a, a friend who's a, a brother that's a pastor, and he says, whenever we see the word for there, we better find out what it's there for. And so we have to look around and go, okay, there's this word for. So what is it there for? What is it pointing to? This promise of light and freedom and peace would all be possible because there would be a child born, a male child born, who would take the throne of heaven, an eternal throne. This son is born of royalty and will be placed there by Yahweh himself. And it's the commitment of Yahweh of heaven's armies that will make it happen. And the beginning of it is ushered in with a chorus of armies declaring of, of armies from heaven declaring that God is doing this amazing work. The son is given four titles here. Well, depends what commentary you read and what versions you read, but I'll stick with four. There are some that say there are two titles, some that say there are five titles, but there's, I'll stick with the four that most of our English translations have. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How many of you are familiar with these titles? Probably because of Handel's Messiah, right? You've heard the song, Christmas season comes out, you know. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'll spare you that, okay? I thought about it. I thought about playing a little clip or just singing, and I won't do that. Um, I thought I was going to do a simple little message on these four titles. That was going to be my Christmas message. I'm just going to focus on these four titles. These titles are not directly quoted or used anywhere else in the Old or New Testament. You won't find them. And it's funny, because these are the ones that we know because they're famous from the song, right? And yet, other passages of Isaiah are quoted over and over and over and over and over again. And these four titles, nope, they're not there. I'm like, really? Well, there goes that sermon. Now I got to start over with something else. I thought I was, and matter of fact, the disciples never referred to Jesus that way. Jesus never referred to himself this way. He never said, I am the wonderful counselor. 
I am the almighty God. He never said that. His disciples never said it about him. Matter of fact, the disciples called him um, the son of God. Um, and in verse 6, it does say that there will be a son from God. So I guess it's the closest thing that we have. They called him the son of God. On a, on a side note, Jesus never referred to himself as the son of God. There's an interesting one. He was the son of man. He doesn't refer to himself as the son of God. He refers to himself as the son of man. Check out the book of Daniel for the hyperlink on that one. But in verse 7, we read that he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And this is a hyperlink back to the Davidic covenant. That, some, that there's something, there's a future hope that there will be a, someone who sits on the throne, a descendant of David, who will rule forever. That's a future day of the Lord event that we're not going to cover today. Lord willing, we're going to cover that next week when we look at um, that concept. The pro this prophecy of the son, the ruling prince who brings peace and establishes his kingdom in power and justice, is the fulfillment that God, of the promise that God made to Abraham. It's a promise that not only affected the Jews, but everyone. The good news to the, um, of the Messiah is that all people, if they're willing to submit to the rule of God in their lives, can be transported from darkness to light and become part of the people or the nation of God. They can experience true joy and peace and eventually victory and lack of struggle both on this earth and with sin. So I've covered a lot of ground here. I probably could have just taken you to one passage but that would have been too easy and it would have only taken two minutes and you're used to me preaching for an hour. So turn to Luke chapter one, verse 67. Luke 167. There's this guy named Zechariah. Now who was Zechariah? I should say, who was his son? John the Baptist. Good, good call. So when Zechariah hears that he's going to have a son and he hears what's going on, he says some amazing things. And in Luke 1, verse 67, we read about the, the account of this prophecy. Then his father, this is John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty savior from the royal line of his servant David just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Wow. If you missed the link to Isaiah 9 in that passage, 
Wow. Zechariah prophesied and knew the promise of God was that things will be different. There will be an end to the darkness. There will be a light. There will be hope for the future because God will send his anointed one, his Christ, his Messiah, to undo the mess that we made in the first place. I want to leave you with a thought this morning. One last thought. This kingdom is not one that we are forced to join, but one that we are invited to join. And those that have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond, you should recognize that passage as well, can experience the joy, the peace, and hope that we talk about so much during the Christmas season, which is possible because of the Christ of Christmas the one that God anointed to redeem humanity. We have the joy and the opportunity to join the light, to experience the peace, to have the hope that was talked about, the peace because of what God did in sending his son, the anointed one, to die for us and redeem us from sin and from the curse that we took on and all of humanity takes on because of the sin in the garden. And someday we have the hope that all of that will be righted, that all of that will be completed when God fulfills all of these promises on the final day of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're able to study and review the amazing truth that you have provided, peace and light and hope and joy and a way to become a part of your people through Jesus, our Messiah, our hope, your anointed one. Father, as we think about our passage in Isaiah, they looked forward to a hope, but we can look back and see that you've done it through Jesus, and we can look forward to the hope that someday you will accomplish this work completely. We thank you for what we celebrate at this Christmas time, that you kept your promise to Abraham, that you kept your promise to David, that you kept your promise to Adam and Eve, that you would provide a way for us to be redeemed, restored back to you. And we thank you for providing that through Jesus Christ. Father, help us to live as a redeemed people and not to go back into that slavery. Not to be overcome with darkness and gloom, but to live in and experience the peace and the joy and the light that you bring. And help us to share that with others as we leave here today, we pray. Amen. Okay, that was a lot to get through. I appreciate you sticking that out. Lord willing, next week we're going to look at David's throne, the Davidic covenant, the stump from the, the, the line of, of Jesse, the branch from the line of Jesse, I mean, the, the stump from the line of David, and the holy seed. And we're going to try to conquer all that and show you how all of that is talking about Jesus as well. So um, 
Any questions or comments? I know I've kept you here a little bit late, but if you have any, I'll be going to field them. All right. Thank you so much for being here.